Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. Ian and Sandy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks. Fantastic. I am so excited to have you both on the show. You recently uh, published a paper called Adversarial Attacks on Neural Network Policies, and I'm really looking forward to digging into uh, some of what you worked on together. But before we do that, why don't we take a moment to have each of you introduce yourselves to the audience? Uh, Ian? Hi, I'm Ian. I lead a team at Google where we study adversarial machine learning. That can be generative adversarial networks. That can also be adversarial examples, which will be the main thing we talk about today. Um, I've been working on deep learning since about 10 years ago, really. I got into deep learning when it was a very academic thing. I spent my PhD studying deep learning. And then when I came and did an internship at Google, I got interested in the security side of machine learning when I helped Christian Zegedy write the first paper on adversarial examples. And that's my main focus today, is making sure that machine learning is secure. Awesome. And what prompted you to study machine learning for your graduate degree? I was really interested in figuring out how intelligence works. As an undergrad, I started out taking a psychology class freshman year, and then I decided that it wasn't quite concrete and technical enough. So I moved on to cognitive science and then neuroscience. And then eventually I decided that I'd be more likely to figure out how intelligence works by studying machine learning directly. It's really, really hard to reverse engineer the human brain, partly just because so far we haven't had the tools to look in and measure the activity of all the neurons. We can't measure as many neurons simultaneously as we would like to. Mm -hmm. During my PhD, I was really interested just in getting machine learning to work, just making AI start to happen. And now that that ball has started rolling, I'm a lot more interested in making sure that there's a good outcome as AI develops further. At Google, we have a lot of different teams like the People and AI Research Group that yeah. study different aspects of how AI relates to society. I started a group that works on adversarial machine learning because I want to make sure that systems with machine learning in them are secure, that people on the outside can't intentionally mess with the machine learning system and cause it to do what they would like it to do rather than what the designers would like it to do. Awesome. How about you, Sandy? How did you get involved in uh, machine learning and AI? Yeah, I think like Ian, my interest also started when I was at undergrad. Um, I started off being really interested in computer science, but more from a biocomputation side of things. I was really interested in understanding how DNA works, understanding genetics, that sort of thing. Um, but then as I was taking more biocomp classes, I realized that I was actually most interested in the machine learning discoveries that had been made, like machine learning driven discoveries discoveries that were made in biocomputation. Um, for example, clustering uh, breast cancer genes to figure out those two different types. And so that's when junior year, I started taking more AI, more machine learning classes. Um, and that's when I realized that, okay, there's a lot more to learn here. And I want to do a PhD in this area and see what else I can figure out. Awesome. And you're advised by both Peter Beal, who's been on the show before, and Anka? Is yes, right? and Anka Dragon, yep. And so does that mean that uh, you spend a lot of time thinking about robotic applications of machine learning and AI? Yes, exactly. Um, recently, I've been thinking a lot about how we can make uh, machine learning systems more interpretable and more predictable. And so that ties in very closely with helping human-robot interaction 
be more feasible in the future. Fantastic. So who wants to get started by telling me a little bit about the paper that you worked on together? Yeah, sure. I can give a summary. Um, so the idea here was that uh, there has there had already been a lot of work that shows that adversarial examples are really effective at attacking classifiers. So things like object recognition, if you train something to recognize objects in a scene, in an image, it's pretty straightforward to find a small perturbation that will get your neural network to output a completely different label than what you had anticipated than what the correct label is. Mm -hmm. And so we were thinking, we want to see if this would apply to um, neural network policies that were trained with deep reinforcement learning. And in particular, we were really interested in to what extent these adversarial perturbations could disrupt the performance of these policies and how transferable they were, even if you didn't know how a particular policy was trained. For example, which deep reinforcement learning algorithm was used to train it. Um, could you still attack that policy? And so that was the overall question that we were trying to answer. Mm, so you referenced the the work on adversarial examples for classifiers, and these are examples. Like actually, before spouting out some examples, do you, uh, do each of you have your own kind of favorite example of adversarial attacks against classifiers? Well, a lot of them are pretty similar. I would say one of my favorite observations is a paper called Delving into Transferable Adversarial Examples, mm -hmm. where the authors found that if they fool several different classifiers simultaneously, if they actually use an optimizer to search for an adversarial example that fools very many different classifiers, then that input is extremely likely to fool another classifier that wasn't involved. You can design these attacks that will actually fool more or less anything without access to the target model that you want to fool. Mm. Uh, so in that example, if you somehow manage to uh, create an example that you know visually looks like an ostrich but is classified as a school bus um, for multiple classifiers, it's, they've demonstrated that it's likely to work on you know, some broader number of classifiers. Exactly. Like suppose that you're a malicious attacker and you want to fool somebody's computer vision system. Mm -hmm. You don't know what they're using. Right. Let's let's say for the sake of argument they're using VGGNet, but the attacker doesn't know that. The attacker could do something like fool Inception and fool a ResNet with the same input image. And if they go ahead and fool those two and a few other models, it's much more likely that they'll fool VGG even if they never actually worked on fooling GGG, VGG specifically. Is the, the fooling specific to the network architecture as opposed to the specific parameters of a, a given model? That's what this paper is able to overcome, that it's able to fool models regardless of their parameters or their architecture. Mm. As, as long as the models are trying to solve the same task, like recognize school buses and ostriches, this attack can find a reliable way of fooling pretty much any architecture that we've we've tested. And that's a lot of what Sandy was saying about how in this paper that we just published on adversarial policies, we wanted to find out if this property of adversarial examples transferring from one policy to another holds up in the same way that transfer between classifiers holds up. And the context here is policies applied to reinforcement learning. Um, can you give us a, a concrete example of uh, what you've got in mind there? 
Uh, sure. Maybe Sandy, do you want to talk about the Atari games? Yeah, sure. So I think when you think deep reinforcement learning, the first really impressive example of this was when DeepMind was able to train DeepQ networks, DQN, mm-hmm. you use that to play Atari games at human level performance. Um, and so the idea there is that you basically start from a random initialization a network that knows nothing. And then very slowly over time, just by getting this reward as feedback, this network is able to learn which actions will help it maximize reward. What's the next step? How does that apply? Or how does um, adversarial attacks apply in that example? Yeah, so the kind of adversarial attacks we were looking at, um, we assume that we've already got a policy that was trained with deep reinforcement learning. Um, So it's fully trained and it's able to get really high performance on the game. So, for example, a policy that's trained to play um, Space Invaders. What we can do is compute these small adversarial perturbations in the image of the game. So we do things like, for example, change a single pixel in the game. And that's able to significantly decrease the performance of this fully trained policy. And so the policy itself is fixed at that point. All we're changing is the input that the policy is given. Wow. And so, uh, and did you find that across, uh, uh, like how broadly did you um, find that this applies, that you're able to change a single pixel value and dramatically uh, impact the performance of the model? Yeah, so we did look at a few different games. All The only domain we looked at in this paper was Atari, but we looked at Chopper Command, Sequest, Space Invaders, and Pong. And so across all those games and across three different ways of training these policies, A3C, TRPO, DQN, um, adversarial examples are you can pretty easily find adversarial examples that will significantly decrease performance, like at least by half. We looked at a range of different perturbations. There are graphs in the paper that show this more um, more concretely. But basically, no matter which game, Atari game you're looking at or how it was trained, you're, it's, pre- it's definitely true that adversarial examples exist. In some training methods, adversarial examples are more effective at decreasing performance. Um, but yeah, they're pretty prevalent. Yeah, it's um, it's fascinating that you found this. I, you know, when I think about it um, in the context of reinforcement learning, I guess my initial take is that it seems different from just looking at an image. Um, but you know, now that now that uh, you've got me thinking about it, I can see how because the training methods are so similar, you would expect to have similar occurrences of adversarial examples in reinforcement learning types of models. One thing that I find really exciting about Sandy's results is that they help us answer a question that's almost more philosophical than technical. Most of the previous work on adversarial examples was about object recognition, looking at a photo and saying whether that photo is of an ostrich or a school bus. Right. But a lot of the time we were making up unusual photos they they weren't photos made by taking a camera and snapping a picture of a school bus in the real world. They were made by a computer program. And there's a deep philosophical question about how you can say what the objectively true answer is in, in such a photo. 
we've mostly evaluated our systems based on whether they agree with human judgment, but maybe the human is making a mistake. So it's it's hard to say that what the system does in the end is objectively wrong. And are you, well, if I can interrupt, is that um, is that critique to uh, does that critique apply to the specific examples that have become popularized of um, adversarial attacks like the ostrich and school bus? I mean, I, I guess I'm, uh, it's not clear to me. Exactly. Yeah. I guess what I'm saying <laughs> is one of the strange things about adversarial examples is we're studying how to make computers make mistakes. Right. And we happen to have done that mostly on, on kinds of data where we don't know objectively what a mistake is or isn't. Mm. If you make up an entirely new image, it's hard to say objectively how that image should be categorized. But for things like playing Atari games, it's it's objective how the points are awarded. For Pong, you need to actually make the ball go through the opponent's goalpost. It's not really a question of whether a human observer thought the ball went through the goalpost. It's just a question of how the Pong game physics define the scoring. Mm. And so... In these experiments, we can actually say that the machine learning system is objectively compromised, that it, it really is doing worse. It's not just that it's playing Pong differently than a human would play. It's actually playing Pong in a way where it receives fewer points. Were you able to produce specific failure modes via these attacks, or are we only looking at this from the perspective of um, you know subpar performance or reduced scores? Like, Could you always make, you know, uh, could you by manipulating a single pixel uh, or some number of pixels always make um, the Pong paddle, you know, the, the, the agent playing Pong missed the ball in the upper left corner? There's some work that came out after ours that focuses on what they call an enchanting attack. Okay. Where they, where they attract the agent toward a particular state. Okay. We were just trying to reduce the score that the agent receives. I don't know, Sandy, did you notice any particular failure modes, like any specific kind of mistakes that the agent would do over and over again? No, I think because when we were computing the adversarial examples, all we were trying to do is to get the agent to not do what it thought was the best action. So it could take any other action besides the best action. Mm. Um, And that would be a successful adversarial attack. So, yeah, I didn't see any specific failure modes, um, although I did see patterns in terms of what particular adverse were found. And so in particular, you mentioned changing one pixel. So in something like Chopper Command, when you change one pixel in this game, the highest impact you can get from that is by changing it in this small miniature map of the entire game that's sort of at the bottom of your screen. Mm-hmm. And so... When we found adversarial examples for this, um, actually most of the, the, for the ones where we only change one or two pixels, those pixels would get changed in that miniature map. And because optimal, that's the optimal way to fool the agent. And so that does shed some light on what the agent has learned to pay attention to. Um, Because you could imagine that maybe if you're just training a deep reinforcement learning agent on images, maybe it just would ignore this miniature map and not realize it's important. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, in that way, adversarial examples are also kind of interesting because they can make policies more interpretable in terms of what they're paying attention to in the scene. Okay. Are there other things that surprised you in in terms of the things you learned in in doing this? 
Uh, I guess one other interesting result that we haven't actually posted yet, but we've talked about at presentations and stuff, is uh, it's actually possible to have dormant adversarial examples as well. So we looked at policies that are recurrent, which means they have some sort of memory. Um, one canonical example is if you have an agent trying to navigate through a maze and you show the agent a particular indicator, say it's a certain color at the beginning of the maze, it has to remember that in order to figure out which goal to go to at the end of the maze. And so if you just did um, plain adversarial attacks, you could have an agent that just, while it's navigating through this maze, starts acting randomly and never reaches the goal at all. But for if you're using, um, if you compute dormant adversarial examples, which means that you perturb a particular input that's given to the agent, but then the agent keeps acting correctly until some time point in the future. And so in this maze, it would be the agent still navigating the maze correctly, and then all of a sudden at the very end actually goes to the wrong goal. Um, but the, the key there is that the point at which the adversarial example was introduced is actually significantly earlier than the point at which the agent makes the mistake, which is what makes it dormant. Um, and so these also exist for recurrent policies. They're a little bit harder to find, but you can find them in very much the same way, just framing it as an optimization problem. What does harder to find mean? Harder to find as in it takes more computational power mm -hmm. to find it. Um, the problem itself is a little bit, there are more local minima, for example, you'll have a lot of examples that won't meet all the constraints of your optimization. Your constraints are basically that you do the right thing for the next, let's say, 10 time steps and the wrong thing on the mm -hmm. 11th time step. Okay. You can think of dormant adversarial examples as being a little bit like post-hypnotic suggestion in a cheesy <laughs> spy movie where, you know, there's a character who has been pre-programmed to suddenly carry out an assassination and even that person themselves doesn't know mm -hmm. that they've been programmed in that way. Kind of the Manchurian candidate, kind of. Exactly, yeah. That was the movie we were talking about when we first had the idea for this project. Interesting. Um, from a security point of view, dormant adversarial examples are more worrisome because they could be presented to an agent before it enters the area that you've secured. You could imagine if you have some kind of room where you're careful about what objects are there, you could make sure that nothing in that area can confuse your robot. But mm -hmm. if your robot could be confused by something it saw before it came into the secure environment, then you actually have to secure it at the level of the machine learning software rather than securing it by making sure that there's nothing unusual in its physical environment. Hmm. Have we, are, are you aware of any, um, publicized examples of adversarial attacks in the wild? I've, I've heard people in finance say that they spend a lot of effort obfuscating their trading algorithms so that their competitors don't reverse engineer their trading algorithm and fool them into making unprofitable trades. Mm. I don't know of anything very similar to the computer vision object recognition examples that we're studying so far. Mm -hmm. Do you know of anything like that, Sandy? I don't know of anything in the wild. I mean, there have been more examples of real-world adversarial examples where um, you do something like print out a poster of a stop sign and paste that on top of a real stop sign. And that's able to 
for a classifier from a lot of different angles and distances. So far, we've been fortunate that the real malicious people don't seem to be using these techniques yet. I think that people probably will in the future. At the moment, I think we're protected by a few factors. One is I think there's a lot of other malicious things you can do that are easier. (laughs) And two, if you have the deep learning expertise, there are less risky ways to turn a profit. Mm -hmm. Have you come across... I don't know even know if you would call these adversarial examples, but uh, like, you know, what's the analog, like accidental adversarial examples, like natural adversarial examples? Is there such a thing? Um, I mean, I think that's that would just be called like Error? training and test. <laughs> well, it'd be like training and test distribution shift. So yeah. something that you saw at test time that you didn't train on and you didn't expect to see, um, which I think ha- does happen all the time. Sure. I mean, it's any. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are optical illusions and things like that that fool humans, even when they're not really designed to. I'm mm-hmm. sure you've seen silly images posted on Reddit where the first time you look at it, you you think you see something entirely different. Like there's lots of party photos where people standing near each other, it looks like someone's arms are actually someone else's legs, so it looks like there's somebody with four legs or something right. like that. Right. That kind of thing comes up in machine learning too, just by chance. So where do you see the the work in this paper going? One thing that I'd be really interested in is going further in the direction of what you were alluding to earlier about controlling the agent to do complicated behaviors that are different from what the designer wanted mm-hmm. rather than just doing worse at the main task. One of the main things making that harder for researchers to do is that we only have access to one reward function. We have a reward function that says play Pong very well. and as an attacker, we can choose actions that make that reward go down. But if we had two different reward functions for the same environment, like if we had a robot that can cook and it's been asked to cook scrambled eggs, but we also have a reward function for making a birthday cake, it would be interesting to show that we could trick it into making a birthday cake. It, it's really easy to break things. It's harder to create uh, something that wasn't there already. And so if as an attacker, we could show we have so much control that we're able to actually create a birthday cake rather than just interfere with making scrambled eggs, that would be a lot more impressive in terms of the capabilities of the attacker. In the example that you use, the robot has multiple reward functions corresponding to, you know, what are, you know, you could view as largely different tasks. Are there, are you seeing a move in reinforcement learning to, towards, um, you know, something other than a single a single reward function, something that's more kind of nuanced or complex. I'm not sure exactly what that means or if the question makes sense, but you're saying is there a different way to evaluate performance or or to give a learning signal to the agent? Um, I don't work on reinforcement learning as much. Sandy is probably better qualified to comment on that. I personally feel like we need to move beyond the paradigm of just maximizing reward for a lot of different reasons. One reason that I have is that it's a strange way to communicate with an agent. Like imagine we wanted a reinforcement learning agent to plan a mission to Mars, and we give it a reward of one when it gets there and a reward of zero otherwise. <laughs> how, how would it even know we wanted it to go to Mars until it got there? Right. Um, you could imagine having two different super intelligent agents, and we want one to cure cancer and one to go to Mars, and we just let them both loose on Earth. How, how would each one know which task it had been assigned until it finished its task? Right. 
So, so conceivably, one could cure cancer, but it was supposed to go to Mars and get no reward, and the other exactly. vice versa. Yeah, I should say I'm I'm saying all this as someone who mostly studies classifiers and generative models. So maybe I'm being very unfair to the reinforcement learning. <laughs> I, I don't know, Sandy. Do you have any thoughts about the future of reward functions? Um, well, I think there's a lot of complexity that can go into a reward signal. I do sort of agree with Ian that it is a pretty severe constraint on how you can give information to your agent if all you're giving it is this particular reward. But you can do things like shape the reward um, or do something more like curriculum learning where you start off the agent with smaller tasks, even if the reward is sparse. Um, and over time, give it harder tasks. But it's already learned how to solve the easier, smaller tasks. So it should be able to more easily solve more difficult ones. I think, yeah, I, I mean, there has been a lot of work recently on trying to do things like transfer learning or um, meta learning in the context of reinforcement learning. And so that's also a promising direction. Uh, you mentioned curriculum learning. Can you elaborate on that? Is that, uh, are you essentially iteratively training with more comprehensive or longer term rewards? Is it related to transfer learning in that sense? Um, yeah, it is related to transfer learning in the sense that you're trying to transfer knowledge from easier tasks to harder tasks. So there's been some work, Carlos Florenza and Peter's group has done some work where you're in a setting with sparse reward, like Ian was talking about, where you get a one if you succeed. But you can do things like start your robot from easier, from starting states that are closer to your goal. For example, if you're trying to get a robot to insert a key into a lock and turn it, mm -hmm. you could start it with the key already inside the lock and it just has to turn the key. Um, and then start with the key just a tiny bit outside the lock. So it just has to figure out how to insert the key and then turn it. Um, and so you just slowly you have a set of states where the robot succeeds from and you slowly expand that set um, to starting states that are just a tiny bit more difficult than the ones the robot can already succeed from. And so that, and then at the end, you have a robot that can insert this key into the lock and turn it from any point within a large range of different points. It's called curriculum learning as an analogy to the way that we teach people in schools. We start out teaching people how to read the alphabet in kindergarten and then build up to you know, very easy C-spot run type books and then gradually to more and more difficult reading tasks. And then once people can read fluently, we start teaching them subject matter that they read in textbooks. We don't, on day one of kindergarten, start throwing everyone um, questions sampled uniformly from the set of all knowledge we expect them to have by age 18. We don't give anyone questions from their Algebra 2 class on day one of kindergarten, we arrange the order of the experiences so that it gets harder and harder as they go through. It seems really obvious in retrospect, but in machine learning, we actually usually do uniformly sample all the experiences that we test the machine learning system on. So curriculum learning is a pretty big change from what's the standard practice. Yeah, and I was thinking ahead a little bit to how the the adversarial attacks might apply in that example and what are the the extent to which we've looked at uh, transferability of adversarial attacks in transfer learning uh, cases in general. Have either of you looked into that? 
I've been a co-author of some work, and I've I've followed a lot of other work with a lot of interest. Um, in 2013, when Christian Zegedi wrote one of the first papers on adversarial examples, he found that if you just make adversarial examples for one model and don't do anything to try to make them transfer, they will often fool other models just by chance without needing to do anything special to cause it to happen. And then later, Nicola Paperno, in a paper that we wrote together, showed that if you train one neural network to copy another neural network, you can actually train it to copy the behavior of the target network on unusual inputs that don't correspond to any kind of real data, as well as regular inputs that look like data. But once you've managed to copy all the decision boundaries of this target network in that way, then you know that adversarial examples for your copy are very likely to fool the target as well. You can copy a network like that without actually having access to its parameters or its architecture. You can just send inputs to it and see what output it assigns them. And then you train your own model to copy that input to output mapping. So is that, are you basically using the, the model that you're copying or the network that you're copying? Is that essentially generating your labeled data? So you've got some inputs, you're sending, sending it to that, and then you're training your uh, model on the inputs and labels that that thing generates? Exactly, yeah. So the attacker doesn't even need to have enough resources to label their own data set. Right. And so any specific thoughts on how adversarial attacks might apply in this curriculum learning type of use case? One thing that's kind of interesting and related to curriculum learning is a, a machine learning security problem called training set poisoning. It's almost like the opposite of curriculum learning. So <laughs> curriculum learning is when a benevolent designer of the system structures the training set to be really easy for the model to learn from. Training set poisoning is when an attacker sneaks something into your training set that you didn't know was there. And then it can make the machine learning model uh, do something that the attacker chose at test time based on what it learned from the training set poisoning. Another really similar idea was introduced. Before you move on from there, can you give a specific example of that? Yeah, um, there's a paper from Stanford that came out last year where they showed that they can introduce a specific picture of a dog that has been altered a little bit, just like an adversarial example. And if you include that dog in your training set, it will misrecognize lots and lots and lots of dogs as fish at test time. Wow. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, I've not come, I've not come across that one. The one other similar thing is introduced in a paper called Bad Nets, and they call it adding a backdoor to the network. The idea is that the person who trains the network might intentionally add something weird to the training set that then lets the network do something they want later on. Um, so for example, suppose that I was training a face recognition system that I would give to other people to use to secure their facility. If I was a bad person, I might put myself in the training set and tell it to always let me in. And then I could go break into their warehouse later without needing to do anything special to get through security. Um, detecting those kinds of backdoors in neural networks is a really interesting research challenge because when a network does something unusual, it can be hard to tell whether the network is making a random mistake, um, the network is making a mistake that someone built into it as a backdoor, or in some cases, the network isn't even making a mistake. It's doing something smarter than, than you, the human, have thought of, and it's actually correcting one of your own mistakes. Um, so when you disagree with it, you don't actually know a priori who's right or wrong. Yeah, the thing that this makes me think about is 
I guess some of the conversations we've had as an industry around code reuse. I forget the specific example, but there was an example about a year ago or so of uh, an NPM library that um, I don't think anything malicious happened, but you know, someone either changed it or unpublished it or something like that. And it, because so many people had used this library in their code, um, it, you know, had the potential to disrupt a whole bunch of applications. And I think the NPM folks, the node folks, you know, came in and like did something extraordinary to make sure this library didn't go away and break all these applications. And, you know, we're seeing a lot of the same, you know, the analogy of code reuse in the machine learning world is like reusing these data sets. But I don't know that we have any real, you know, standards for certifying data sets as being, you know, untampered with. And, you know, the the idea that you can introduce backdoors or, you know, make uh, neural networks misbehave in really bad ways by manipulating the training data sets suggests that, um, you know, that we need these kinds of standards. And even a lot of people, you know, create their training data sets by crawling the web. And we know that you can kind of poison, you know, web search results by, um, you know, creating linking architectures and things like that so that certain things could, um, you know, to make uh, certain results become more popular. And that could have a downstream impact on these models as well. Exactly. Yeah. Sandy, do you have any war stories from (laughs) training sets at Berkeley? No, I guess in the, well, in the context of reinforcement learning, you don't really have a training set like you do in supervised learning. You have your simulator. Um, And so I think, I, I mean, something similar does apply. You could have a simulator that somehow gets the agent to learn some correlation that actually impairs it when it's launched on on, on like a test simulator. Um, I mean, I think this is sort of related to reward hacking. If there is something that the agent can exploit in your simulator, a lot of times if you are training it with deep reinforcement learning, it will find that and it will exploit that. Um, but the difference is in the context of reward hacking, it's pretty obvious when your agent has done that. If you just watch a rollout of the agent, you can usually detect that, okay, it's not actually doing what I want it to do. And just to make sure folks are familiar with the term reward hacking, you know, these are examples in the case of video games where the one that I remember was a uh, kind of this agent that's a boat that figures out that if it swirls around in a circle, it racks up a whole bunch of points, even though it's not making progress towards its end goal or what you might want its end goal to be. Is that yeah, that right? Yeah, exactly. That's a really popular example. And the problem there is that you told the agent to maximize score. And by swirling around, it's able to get all these points by getting these um, things in the environment that appear periodically. And so that's what's doing while swirling around. But really, you wanted the agent to win the game, but you couldn't really specify that particular reward function. Um, so that's why you gave it just told it to maximize points. Um, but that goes along with the discussion we were having earlier about how the reward function is really important and you need to be really careful in selecting your reward function and make sure you're actually telling the agent what you want it to do. Yeah, and I think the question that I was, the way I was trying to ask the question previously was, you know, is there a notion at all of, 
you know, either hierarchical reward functions or multiple reward functions that you try to optimize simultaneously? Um, or is, is that just, you know, beyond, uh, the frontier of complexity for us right now? There was a really interesting recent result from DeepMind uh, with a system called Impala. They showed that they could train on several different tasks at the same time and actually do better on task A because they had also studied task B, C, and D. Uh, that, that was actually pretty hard to get even that much working. And so would you expect it to be easier or harder to... I'm assuming in this case there are separate rewards functions for each of these tasks... Um, but I'm envisioning at least conceptually that you can have a single task with multiple reward functions. Um, would you expect that to be easier or harder than what they did? I would expect that to be easier. It's mostly that for most of the simulators we have, there's really one thing that you want to do. Like in the Pong simulator, you want to play Pong by, by knocking the ball through the opponent's goalpost. Yeah, I guess I'm thinking of something, you know, maybe the simple example of the kind of thing I'm thinking of is the whole explore exploit. Like maybe there's, um, you know, you have a, a game that, you know, it's like a map based or world based game and you want, you know, one, ex- one reward function to be, uh, win the game. But you also want to encourage your agent to uh, explore the world. And so you might have, at least I'm envisioning you, you'd have one reward function that correlates to uh, the amount of the world that's been explored and another that correlates to winning the game. And, you know, what does it mean to kind of maximize both of those? Yeah, I think that that reminds me of hierarchical reinforcement learning, which is definitely a topic that is being studied. Um, So in that sense, you have uh, sort of different levels of agents. You have a planner that essentially decides, okay, what do I want to do? What is most important to do at this point in the game? Do I explore? Do I exploit? Do I do something else? And then that they pass down that, um, I guess, that sub reward to a policy that's been trained to, for example, explore really efficiently. Um, and, and so you can learn this whole thing end to end. Um, I mean, DeepMind also had a paper on this last year. I forget what the what the name of it is, but yeah, where they're able to show that it is possible to train a giant policy that does hierarchical reinforcement learning and passes down these sub-rewards. I think this is really important for complex tasks like trying to win a game of StarCraft, for example. Um, it might be it might take a lot longer to train this end to end compared to if you're doing it in a hierarchical way. Mm. You know, we've talked about uh, examples of you know fooling classifiers or fooling you know reinforcement uh, trained agents, uh, which could be robots. But I'm wondering, given uh, the the focus of your work is on robotics. I'm wondering if there are any more subtle examples uh, that you've come across or things that, um, you know, are areas uh, of concern uh, for uh, the application of adversarial uh, examples or adversarial training in the, the context of robotics. Yeah, I think one of the key problems is that adversarial examples make policies and they make robots less predictable and 
it's harder to anticipate their behavior. Um, and so if you are if you're a human trying to interact with a robot or riding in a car, um, you have this mental model of how you think this robot is going to behave in the next like one, two seconds. And so the dangerous thing about adversarial examples is that that basically breaks your model and puts you in a position where you're not sure how to respond as a human. And so that's really dangerous. Um, I think the fact that it does seem possible to introduce adversarial examples, whether you train this policy with reinforcement learning or with supervised learning, um, does seem, I mean, that's pretty pretty scary. Um, although it is hard to get adversarial examples in the real world. And like Ian said, there's a lot of other ways in which robots can misbehave that don't depend on adversarial examples. And so the whole the whole challenge of getting robust and predictable and interpretable robots is much bigger than just trying to solve the problem of adversarial examples. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One thing that I'm really excited about is that adversarial examples give us a way of studying how robust a robotic system is in very concrete mathematical terms. We specify a model where we say all the things that an attacker can do, and then we try to prove that our policy will still work, even in the worst case, where the attacker chooses the thing that is the most likely to interfere with with the robot's abilities. So far, we're not able to defend against that kind of attack. But in the future, when our defense algorithms get better, if we're able to perform well in the worst case, it should also mean that we're always able to guarantee good performance in the average case. That if we're able to resist actual tampering, we can also be robust to things that that interfere with robot policies right now. Like when you train a policy on one robot body and then run it on another robot body that is slightly different due to mechanical imperfections, um, that can be enough to interfere with that policy. Mm. Um, that's actually a good segue to what I think will be our last question here. A lot of the work on in the the supervised learning camp of adversarial examples uh, has been on you know architectures or methodologies for creating robustness in the networks uh, to these kinds of attacks. Um, have you done or seen anything in the reinforcement learning world uh, along those lines yet? Some of the follow-up work on our first paper actually used some of the techniques from classifiers to increase the robustness. So this is, there was some work from CMU last year. It was called Robust Adversarial Reinforcement Learning. They were trying to, well, their definition of adversarial attacks was more physical. So you're training this locomotion agent in Mujoko and the adversary can apply these forces to the agent. And you train the adversary actually in parallel with the policy that you're trying to train to get this agent to walk or make forward progress. Um, And what they, they were able to find is that by training this agent to be able to walk despite these forces applied to it by the adversary. Um, They were able to get an agent that was more robust in terms of being able to locomote across many different parameters of the environment in terms of friction or mass, different Mm -hmm. body parts of the agent, things like that. And Mujroko, that's a simulator. That's right. 
Yeah, that's a simulator. So that's where you have things like the half cheetah and the humanoid on the swimmer. Yeah. Great. Great. Well, any final words from either of you? Any uh, parting thoughts or things that you'd like to point folks to if they're interested in learning more about this stuff? You could summarize a lot of what we talked about today as Goodhart's Law in action. Goodhart's Law is an idea that came from economics that says once you use some value as a metric that you make it your target to optimize, it's no longer a good metric. And we see that happen with both adversarial examples and with reward hacking. Um, if we use the, the output of a classifier as something that we're going to optimize, we find an adversarial example instead of a good input from a particular target class. And similarly, if a reinforcement learning agent optimizes its reward function too well, it can find ways of obtaining rewards that are spurious and not doing what we actually hoped the RL agent would do. Yeah, I I think that's a great summary. Are there any specific implications of thinking of this stuff in terms of Goodhart's law? I guess one thing is just that it lets us see that there are many different things that all fall in the same category, that you could think of reward hacking as a kind of adversarial example or vice versa. And you can see that solutions to one might help with the other. Got it. Awesome. Well, Ian, Sandy, thank you both so much for taking the time to chat with us about this stuff. It's really interesting uh, and important work. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. For more information on Ian, Sandy, or any of the topics covered in this episode, you'll find the show notes at twimlai.com slash talk slash 119. If you have any questions for Ian or Sandy, please post them there and we'll make sure to bring them to their attention. If you're new to the podcast and you like what you hear, or you're a veteran listener and haven't already done so, please take a moment to head on over to your podcast app of choice and leave us your most gracious rating and review. It helps new listeners find us, which helps us grow. Thanks in advance, and thanks so much for listening. Catch you next time.